every single Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 3 p.m., where I will be here live bringing you the most debatable content in all of sports, only on KJAC Radio. Now, we have a ton to talk about on the show today. The NCAA tournament is coming to an end tonight with Baylor taking on Gonzaga, and a big-time trade was just made in the NFL. We're going to cover that later on in the show, but I want to jump in and talk about the two final four matchups before we really get into anything in the show. Uh, First off, I want to start with Houston taking on Baylor. This was the first matchup on Saturday for the Final Four. Houston 28-3 coming into this game. Baylor 26-2. Both had great seasons. Both looked like great teams. Houston, defensively, that's where they were strongest. And really, they, they looked like a strong defensive team throughout this entire tournament. But their big issue was they really didn't play anybody throughout this whole tournament. And when they ran into a Baylor Bears team that was just so talented and so good, they just ran into a team that was too much to handle, too tough to stop. And offensively, they had a similar output to what they had the first four games of the tournament. But defensively, they couldn't hold this Baylor Bears team back. They couldn't limit them any way, shape, or form. It was a 78-59 to game. Baylor ended up with the W. But for Houston... They ended up getting to the Final Four for the first time since 1984. This was a big-time tournament for them, and they saw some great contributions from some of their players. Marcus Sasser, who has been a either hot or cold player, looked like a star during this game. He was hitting a ton of shots, and Davion Mitchell had to switch off of Quentin Grimes to go defend him because of just how hot he was throughout the game. He scored 20 points. Quentin Grimes, although it is going to be his final season here, with the Houston Cougars, unless he does choose to return. Uh, I, I don't think he's going to return. I think he's probably going to take his talents to the NBA. I think he's NBA ready. Now, his performance against the Baylor Bears, one for eight from three, didn't show that he was super NBA ready. Uh, he struggled with, uh, with not being a super reliable number one option, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, at the next level, Quentin Grimes isn't going to be a number one option. So uh, for him being a good number two or number three, I, I think he can carve out a decent role in the NBA at this point. Uh, I mean, obviously for, for Houston, they'd love it if he came back, uh, but there's no guarantee he's going to do that. And then Dejan Drew's gone. Even if Dejan Drew wanted to come back, he had no chance. Uh, so this Houston team is going to have to go through a little bit of a change. Marcus Sasser should still stay there. He should still be a Houston Cougar. He should be the leader next season. And there are guys who are looking pretty good, looking like they can take over those roles. Tremont Mark, uh, freshman this year, had a great season, had a pretty good tournament. Four points in the uh, Houston versus Baylor game. Not his best outing, but he definitely is a guy who's going to step up next year. For Houston, this isn't the end. I mean, this isn't the last time we're going to see them. Kelvin Sampson has done a tremendous job with this team. He's really got them ready for a tough, tough uh, NCAA tournament where Houston faced off against some really hot teams. Syracuse with some of the best defense in the tournament. Oregon State was just on a roll. So Houston ended up winning the games that they were supposed to win. They got by Rutgers. They got, got, got by Cleveland State as well. But when they ran into Baylor, it just wasn't right for them. Baylor was just too powerful offensively. And defensively, they made the right stops. Houston's a good team. And they're a, a, a team that, that we, we will see back at, at some point. But 
when you look at this Baylor team, they're just so much deeper, so much more guys who are capable of getting it done. I mean, we saw only about 11 points off the bench uh, for Houston. Uh, and then if you just look at Matthew Mayer coming off the bench for Baylor himself, he had 12 points on his own. So the bench production for, for Houston wasn't quite up to par with the bench production of Baylor. And that's just something that Houston's going to have to work with in time. They're going to have to try to get a lineup suitable, but this was a good opportunity for them. They looked like a good team. They earned their way here, and defensively, they showed that they really have the the know-with-all how to get it done. I think Dejan Giroux has a path to the NBA, but it's not very secure. It's not very guaranteed. He's a great defender. That's really what he's got going for him. He's a great defender, uh, but offensively, he needs a ton of work, and I'm not sure if he's quite capable of making that jump to the NBA. Even though he is a senior and and it might be his last opportunity, I, I love the defense he brings. And I, I love what he the energy and the love that he brings for his teammates. I think that's uh, so valuable. Uh, there, I mean, you can't put a price on how important that is uh, to the Houston Cougars this year, especially. I mean, Dejan Drew was one of the... The, the glue guys for this team, we saw him with so much emotion in the Rutgers game, so much emotion throughout the tournament, hugging teammates. I mean, he was the glue guy, and he's the same type of guy who can do that in any sort of locker room. Uh, I, I love the defense he brings, but can he take that to the next level? Can he transition and, and really reevaluate his offensive game? Because uh, even though he is a good offensive player, he has shown that he's got a pretty good uh, floater. He's got a decent three-point shot. He's got some issues that he definitely has to address. He's got some inconsistencies. I mean, six points against Baylor, he had a really tough outing. But when they faced off against Rutgers, he was the only guy that kept them in that game. Without Dejan Giroux, they wouldn't have won that game against Rutgers in the second round. So inconsistency is something that definitely needs to be solved. Uh, we saw the inconsistency in the Baylor game. We think, or I think that uh, Baylor is... The better team and I expected them to beat Houston now the expectation wasn't that it was going to be a, a blowout I mean Baylor dominated this game from start to finish that a 45 to 20 point lead at halftime and then they just held control of the ball they didn't make mistakes and they made shots down the stretch even though Houston was starting to put up a comeback they scored almost 40 points in the second half there was no way that Baylor was going to be limited and going to let their offense just die out while Houston made a comeback. I mean, some great performances from Jared Butler, 17 points. He really kept this team in it. But, I mean, the balance of this team is really what keeps this team so strong. Baylor has so much balance. Jared Butler, Davion Mitchell, Maki Teague are just a great three-person guard unit, and, and they'd be a great unit for any team in the country. But then they have guys coming off the bench like Adam Flagger, Matthew Mayer, Jonathan Chamwachachua. I mean, there are some real talented players on this Baylor Bears team, and they showed it against Houston. Houston was not a slouch, and let's just get that out of the way right away. Houston was not a bad team when they came up and matched up against Baylor. I mean, there's no question about it. They were a good defensive team, a team that had some quality offensive options. Quentin Grimes, Marcus Sasser, I mean, both of those guys, quality offensive options. The only problem with Houston is when one guy goes cold for this team, it wasn't sustainable. So Quentin Grimes going cold wasn't sustainable for Houston because 
Dejon Giroux doesn't have that offensive prowess to step up and take over against a Baylor Bears defense. Marcus Sasser tried. I mean, he did everything he can, but once Davion Mitchell was switched on to him, it was pretty much at the end of the game, the end of the road for him. So for Marcus Sasser, he kept them in it in the first half. And eventually they lost complete control and Baylor took over. But they're going to need to find somebody for the future to step up and be another option beyond what they had. Because Sasser's good, Grimes is good, Giroux is good. But once you look at those options beyond Fabian White, Tremont, Mark, I mean, those guys didn't step up to the plate. They didn't do what they needed to do. Chaney and Gorham are both not offensive options for the most part on this team. So Houston didn't have those offensive options to just keep up with the firepower that Baylor has. And that's not a huge surprise. I mean, we saw that Baylor has been able to really outdo and outmatch so many different offenses throughout the season, not only during the NCAA tournament, but throughout the regular season as well. Baylor was at the top of their game. So Houston showing up, losing by 20 points, not a huge surprise, but for Houston, they have to be disappointed in in the effort and the output that they had. I'm going to take a quick break. When I come back, I want to break down the UCLA versus Gonzaga matchup that we had on Saturday. Stay tuned for that. The Gonzaga Bulldogs matchup against the UCLA Bruins this weekend was probably the best matchup that we have seen in a couple of years as far as college basketball goes. Welcome back to Up for Debate. I'm your host, Cade Reed. Thank you all very much for tuning in today. And make sure you tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 3 p.m. where I will be here live bringing you the most debatable content in all of sports only on KJAC Radio. Now I want to jump right in to the other Final Four matchup. We talked about Houston versus Baylor in the first segment of the show. Now I want to jump into the UCLA-Gonzaga matchup, which was one of the best matchups that we have seen in a long time for college basketball. Now not to say that there aren't other great college basketball games, but UCLA absolutely stunned everybody with their performance. And I'm one of those people who was completely stunned. I thought UCLA was going to be completely outmatched, completely outgunned by a very talented Gonzaga unit, but that was just not the case. UCLA looked like a well-rounded, really good unit, and their three-point shot was right on point. Now, the only issue UCLA faced is defensively, they just weren't capable of really getting the job done. I mean, Gonzaga's offense was too well-rounded, too many scorers, too many guys to get the job done, and the high-scoring game was just too much for UCLA to keep up with. Now, the offense and the start of this game for uh, this UCLA team was incredible. I mean, they just played incredibly well early on, and they showed that they were going to put up a fight throughout the game. Just at the beginning parts of the game, you could tell with how how grueling and, and how tough they were playing uh, I, I want to talk about Johnny Juzang. Johnny Juzang has really proven himself as one of the superstars out of the tournament. And I know that he isn't going to win the uh, uh, the award for best tournament performance, best player in the tournament, but he definitely has a spot or a, a spot on that list for sure. He had a tremendous tournament. Even though this UCLA team lost in the first round to Oregon State, when they found their way into the tournament, they did not stop going, and Johnny Juzang showed just how important he can be to a roster. Now, I don't expect Johnny Juzang to head into the draft this year, but if he does, he he formed and he created a path for himself. 
I mean, a former transfer from Kentucky, he wasn't really expected to be that guy. And UCLA turned him into that guy. They turned him into a stud, a star. They turned him into the player that he can become. And at six foot six, 210 pounds, he has the perfect size and shooting ability for a guy of his ability. And I expect Johnny Juzang, if he does stay with UCLA, to not just end his great tournament performances here. I mean, I expect him to really continue and stay onto this track. He is a superstar. I mean, Johnny Juzang proved himself. If nobody believed in him, everybody should believe in him now. And looking at this UCLA team going forward, they've got some guys that they're going to be able to keep on to. Jaime Jaquez sticking around, most likely. Uh, we're probably going to see Tiger Campbell stick around. I mean, this is a young unit that made a deep tournament push, and I have an expectation that they will keep getting better and keep pushing. Johnny Juzang, if he sticks with this team, they're going to be a team to watch for uh, in the NCAA tournament next season. And even though they lost to Gonzaga, they proved their worth, and I did not believe in them until then. I mean, I thought they were going to lose by 15, 20, even 30 points at, at, at times at the beginning of that game. I had no expectation for this team uh, to win this game or to even take it as close as it was. My expectation was UCLA was going to get blown out because, quite frankly, I thought that the depth and the talent level of Gonzaga was too much, too much to handle. And this does worry me a little bit. This worries me if, if I'm thinking about Gonzaga because Gonzaga has looked like a much better team this season than they did against UCLA. Yes, offensively, they played incredibly. They had a tremendous offensive go. They had 25 points from Drew Timmy. They had 22 points from Joel Ayayi. Uh, Jalen Suggs had 16. Corey Kispert with 15. They had a bunch of guys going, a bunch of scores. Uh, so... I, I think they played their offensive game the way they wanted to. And there's no problem with that. Maybe Corey Kispert could have shot the ball, the ball better, but Gonzaga did what they do on offense, like, like they do every single year. But defensively, they really had no answer uh, for Jaime Jaquez or Johnny Juzang. Johnny Juzang, 12 for 18 on the night, 29 points. He absolutely exposed this Gonzaga defense and... If not for the greatest play of the tournament, Jalen Suggs hitting an absolute monster and masterful buzzer beater at the end of the game to send the Zags to the championship game, this would not be the case. I mean, I don't even know if they would have gone on and won that game in overtime. Now, UCLA looked like the better team to me. And the reason I thought that was because on the interior, Cody Riley looked like a good defender. Now, him being on the on the glass was, was really important. He won that glass battle with Drew Timmy. Now, Timmy won the point battle. He was able to score inside. He was able to put up a bunch of points against Cody Riley, but Riley stepped up into that rebounding role that they needed him to do. Johnny Juzang outmatched the guard play of Jalen Suggs. Now, Jalen Suggs hit the three-pointer at the end of the game. He won the game for this team, so yeah, I mean, who's going to be happier with their performance, Jalen Suggs or Johnny Juzang? But Juzang outmatched Jalen Suggs. And if Juzang has that ability to outmatch Jalen Suggs, who is a future top five NBA draft pick, I'm just curious to see what Johnny Juzang can do going forward. I mean, what can he do if you put him in a lineup that has just a little bit more scoring talent? 
I mean, against Michigan, this UCLA team had to rely on him way too heavily. 28 out of the 51 points were scored by Johnny Juzang for this UCLA team. So they had to rely on him a little too heavily. And I, I hope that this UCLA team does end up bringing in some new recruits, some new guys, because uh, I think this should put them back on the map. If you're a Final Four team, this is the exposure you want, and UCLA got that exposure. They should be back on the map as far as uh, college basketball programs that are building real powerhouses. Mick Cronin did a tremendous job with UCLA this year, and even though the expectation from me was that this UCLA team was going to fail every step of the way, they kept fighting, they kept overcoming every single challenge that they had, and even against Gonzaga, if not for a wild buzzer beater by Jalen Suggs, this UCLA team had a real chance to win in double overtime. I mean, they were a great roster put together that, that really meshed well. Johnny Juzang, that leading scorer, he was able to rely on Jame Jaquez when he was getting a little bit tired or when he needed a break. Tiger Campbell also was a great ball handler. He did exactly what he needed to do. The only thing that I think UCLA could have done a little bit better was once that fourth foul came for Drew Timme, they needed to attack him. Now, yes, he did have that charge call that went the other way on Johnny Juzang, but that was the right idea. Going after Drew Timmy, trying to get him out of the game, trying to knock him out was the best idea UCLA could have had. Now, I'm going to to make it clear that when when Drew Timmy stepped in for that charge, he was he was there. I mean, he got his feet set. Maybe his arms were moving. He might have been adjusting, but he was set, and that was a clean charge. So I, I, there's no argument about whether or not that foul should have been called. That was a clean charge. Drew Timmy stepped in front. And of Johnny Juzang, and he was there. He was positioned. Johnny Juzang should have either passed the ball out and got out of the way, or he should have just jumped to the side, do a hop step. I mean, get away from, from Drew Teme. If you know that somebody's going to play for the charge, you know that they're not going to move when you jump around them. So for Juzang, yes, it was a really tough shot, a really tough uh, angle that he would have had to go into, but when you see Drew Teme stepping into that place, you have to really... Uh, you have to understand that he's going to try to take that charge. And then as far as the block goes, when uh, Jalen Suggs blocked the dunk from Cody Riley, that was no foul either. I mean, that was a clean all-ball block. Maybe he got a little piece of his hand, but as far as basketball goes, hand is a piece of the ball. And Cody Riley, if you watch the replay over again, you can see that that he was trying to dunk the ball and his hand didn't change directions, but the ball did. Uh, the reason is because it was a clean block from Jalen Suggs. Jalen Suggs did a tremendous job, and Gonzaga won this game based off of those plays. Those gritty plays are what won Gonzaga the game, and we don't really know Gonzaga as a super gritty team. Uh, Drew Timme stepping in for that charge with four fouls, that was a gritty play. Jalen Suggs with that big block on Cody Riley, that was a gritty play. Now, they didn't do a good enough job stopping the UCLA offense on their last possession which tied the game. And that was a big concern of mine. I mean, it was just too easy for UCLA to make that a 90-90 to game with only a couple seconds left on the clock. And Gonzaga really lucked out. I mean, they really lucked out by getting that three-point shot from Jalen Suggs. Now, not to say that they didn't deserve to win the game because what they did was great. I mean, they, they had some really great plays down the stretch that won them the game. But when you allow somebody to score that easily at the end of the game to tie it up, 
I mean, that is a big-time issue, and I think that's something that Gonzaga is going to have to address uh, before they go into this next game against Baylor. Now, we're going to talk about this next game against Baylor uh, very soon, but I'm going to take a quick break. When I come back, we're talking Baylor, we're talking Gonzaga, and I'm giving you guys my predictions and everything I'm thinking about that, so stay tuned for that. Houston or excuse me, Baylor and Gonzaga are finally matching up. The two best teams in college basketball, the Baylor Bears and the Gonzaga Bulldogs, are meeting in the NCAA championship game. Welcome back to Up for Debate. I'm your host, Cade Reed. Thank you all very much for tuning in today. And make sure you tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 3 p.m. where I will be here live bringing you the most debatable content in all of sports, only on KJAC Radio. Now, we have a great matchup for the men's basketball championship, national championship game in the NCAA tournament. The Baylor Bears are taking on the Gonzaga Bulldogs. And if you guys tuned in to my uh, bracket filling out uh, part of the show, you guys might have heard me talking about um, how the Baylor Bears and the Gonzaga Bulldogs were both going to be in the NCAA Tournament Championship. And, just like I said, Baylor and Gonzaga, the two best teams in college basketball, are meeting tonight to face off and hopefully see who wins the National Championship game, Baylor versus Gonzaga. And this is exactly what we were expecting. This was the expectation going into the season Baylor was the best team, Gonzaga was the best team, and that's how it stayed throughout the entire season for the most part. Baylor just kept playing good ball in the Big 12, and Gonzaga was seemingly untouchable until they had a little bit of an overtime scare against UCLA this weekend, but I want to break down the matchup and give my previews and predictions. Now, I will say that if um, I, I did pick Baylor to win the NCAA tournament, I did pick Baylor to win the NCAA tournament, so my thought process is Baylor is still going to go on and win the NCAA tournament. I think Gonzaga is susceptible to a loss. Now, they did face off against some good teams early on in the season. They faced off against Kansas, West Virginia. They faced off against Iowa, but really all of those teams are completely different than what we've seen from this uh, from this Baylor team. I think the most similar team that Gonzaga has faced uh, is UCLA. And I think UCLA is a worse version of what we have seen from uh, the Baylor Bears. Now, yes, Johnny Juzang has a little bit more of a forward size, but the guard play and, and the 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 on-ball play is what UCLA really controlled. They controlled the ball, whether it was Johnny Juzang, whether it was Hame Hawkes as a power forward or Tiger Campbell, they controlled the ball. And that's exactly what's going to happen with Baylor. They've got great ball handlers, and Gonzaga defensively hasn't shown that they can really slow down a ton of teams. Now, offensively, they've shown all year long that they can blow out anybody, that if you score 90 points against them, they're going to score 93. If you score 95 points, they're going to score 110. I mean, this Gonzaga team has shown that offensively, they can go on streaks and runs that no team in all of college basketball can stop. But they can also go cold. Corey Kispert hasn't been the best three-point shooter that he's been this tournament. He's two for eight in the last game against uh, UCLA. Joel Ayayi has been good, and he's been consistent, but 
he's lacking a little bit um, as far as one of the better shooters for this Gonzaga team. I am a little bit concerned that Gonzaga's matchups aren't exactly what they want on both ends of the ball because Baylor has great offensive players and defensive players. Now, Jared Butler is probably going to match up with Jalen Suggs. Uh, Corey Kispert and Davion Mitchell. I mean, who knows what those matchups are going to turn out to be, but as far as I'm concerned, the guard matchups go to Baylor. Even though Jalen Suggs is probably the most talented player in all of the game, uh, as, as far as defensive talent goes, Davion Mitchell is the better defender. As far as offensive talent goes, Jared Butler can can keep up with Jalen Suggs. So Gonzaga, they have this firepower. They've got this great unit, but I don't think it's going to be Jalen Suggs or Corey Kispert that puts Gonzaga over the top. I think if Gonzaga wants to win this game, they're going to have to rely on Drew Timmy. Timmy has been their best player throughout the tournament. He's Probably been their best player all year long, uh, averaging 19.7 rebounds. Defensively, he might not be the best. He might give up some on the inside. But what he does on the offensive end has really put him on the map. Uh, 25 points against UCLA, 23 points against USC, 22 against Creighton, 30 against Oklahoma. Drew Timmy has had a heck of a tournament. He has had a great tournament, and he has really contributed on the offensive end. Now defensively, I'm a little bit worried that Baylor doesn't have the the firepower to really keep up and match up with Drew Timmy. Timmy is going to be one of the better interior players that Baylor has faced in a pretty long time. I mean, if you look at their matchups throughout this tournament, Houston really doesn't have a great big guy. Arkansas isn't really dominant on the inside. They're more guard heavy. Villanova, Jeremiah Robinson Earl's their best player, but he's a power forward. He's a little different than Drew Timmy. I think he's probably the most similar player they played to Drew Timmy, and they struggled. Baylor struggled trying to to slow down Jeremiah Robinson Earl. I do have concerns that this team might struggle against Drew Timmy, but if they can slow down Drew Timmy, if Baylor can can neutralize Drew Timmy and not let him score 30 points in this matchup, I think Baylor has the edge. I mean, Baylor has so much different options, so many uh, different guys who can really step up and and make those big-time shots, make those big-time plays. For Gonzaga, I'm really looking at Drew Timmy, Corey Kispert, and Jalen Suggs. Now, yes, they do have other guys. Joel Ayayi can get it done. He's averaging 12 a game. Andrew Nemhart has played really well this tournament, uh, nine points per game. But once you go beyond that, that new starting five, I'm a little concerned that Baylor has better depth. I mean... Andrew Nemhart is good, but I think Adam Flagler is a little bit better of a three-point shooter, a little bit more consistent. Uh, I like what they do, uh, what this Gonzaga team does as far as balancing their lineup. They're a very well-balanced lineup. Drew Timmy has been a great big for them, and that's really been what kept them balanced this season. But as far as their guard play goes, I don't think they can match up with Baylor. I mean, if you look at how many different options Baylor has offensively, that's already something that that is a concern. Jared Butler, Maki Teague, and Davion Mitchell all averaging over 14 points per game. Adam Flagler and Matthew Mayer, both guys can come off the bench and really step into a big-time scoring role. Adam Flagler has been a great three-point shooter, shooting over 42% this season. Matthew Mayer stepped up with 40% at six foot nine. I mean, he is a dynamic player. I think this Baylor team has a slight edge against Gonzaga. 
Now, this slight edge can be erased in, in a matter of moments if Drew Timmy can step up and really take control. Now, I have no doubt in my mind that Drew Timmy is going to be a tough, tough matchup for Baylor. I mean, their interior defensemen, Flo Thamba, uh, Jonathan Chamwa Chachua, they aren't really all that great comparatively. So, I really do believe Drew Timmy is going to be a tough stop. But the Baylor Bears four-guard unit coming out with Jared Butler, Macchio Teague, Davion Mitchell, and Adam Flagler, that is a unit that is going to be nearly unstoppable. I like what Mark Vital can do. I think he's going to have a big impact on slowing down and neutralizing Drew Timmy. Uh, double teams. I mean, that's what it's going to take for Baylor is double teams. you got to double team the inside. As soon as the ball goes to Drew Timmy on the inside, you have to collapse on the ball. Make sure that the three-point shooters aren't left too open. Uh, but, I mean, you would rather take those, those shots at, at about 30% than taking a, a big-time easy make from, from Drew Timmy against an undersized defenseman because that's really all that Baylor has is these undersized guys trying to guard uh, a six foot eleven Drew Timmy. Flo Thamba's got some size, but he doesn't really have too much strength. Six foot ten, but only 245 pounds isn't going to really muscle and move Drew Timmy out of the paint. And as far as Gonzaga goes, if they can get Drew Timmy the ball, if they can really get him inside going, I mean, Baylor doesn't have the setup to stop him. Now, obviously, they're going to game plan. They're going to find a way to try to slow down Drew Timmy. I mean, that has to be the game plan for Baylor because if they don't stop Drew Timmy, he can dominate. He can take over. Now, I don't think there's really another guy on this uh, Gonzaga team that can really take over, that can really dominate if Drew Timmy is neutralized. And I know Jalen Suggs is incredible, but you match him up with Davion Mitchell, and it's just going to be a nightmare of a day for him. It's just a tough, tough defensive matchup. He's gritty. He's going to grind from step to step. Now, if you're Gonzaga, obviously they're the favorite in this matchup. They're a well-rounded team. They're an offensive powerhouse. And them losing this game is probably a little bit rough. I mean, it'll probably be hard to beat this Gonzaga team, but they are susceptible to a loss. I mean, we saw their performance against UCLA. Not to say that UCLA isn't a good team, but UCLA was able to match them and and was nearly able to outmatch them. So I think Baylor's a much better team. I think if Baylor plays the same game they did against Houston and Gonzaga plays the same game they did against UCLA, Baylor will come out on top. Now, obviously that's not going to happen. They're going to play different games. They're going to come out with different game plans, uh, and, and we're going to see different types of performances. But for this Baylor Bears team, they've got the talent. They've got the skill level. They just need to put it all together, hit their three-point shot. I mean, this is a 42% three-point shooting team, the best in college basketball. They have to get that three-point shot going. Gonzaga is a team you have to keep up with. And even though Gonzaga's defense hasn't been great, they still do have some very good defenders, some some defenders that can step up and make big-time plays. So I think Baylor wins this game, but it's going to be a back-and-forth grind session, and it'll be a must-watch matchup for everybody, in my opinion. I mean, these are the two best teams in college basketball. If you liked what you saw in the UCLA-Gonzaga game, this game should bring even more fireworks. But I'm going to take a quick break when I come back. We're going to talk about Drew Holiday and his new extension with the Milwaukee Bucks. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Up for Debate. I'm your host, Cade Reed. Thank you all very much for tuning in today. And make sure you tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. 
uh, from 1 to 3 p.m. where I will be here live bringing you the most debatable content in all of sports, only on KJAC Radio. Now, we already talked a lot of basketball. The NCAA tournament is coming to an end tonight. That is a must-watch game between Baylor and Gonzaga. We talked a little bit about how both of these teams got to this point, and I gave my prediction that Baylor will knock Gonzaga out in a very close-fought game. Now I want to move on to another basketball topic. No more college basketball, though. I want to talk about the NBA. And Drew Holiday has just received a four-year maximum extension to stay in Milwaukee. And this is a big-time deal for the Milwaukee Bucks because they finally have that big three set up and solidified for a pretty long time now. Now Milwaukee is going to run their big three of Giannis Antetokounmpo, Chris Middleton, and Drew Holiday. And that's what they're going to have to rely on for the next four years uh, if they want to win an NBA championship. Now, Drew Holiday was overpaid. I just want to start off and simply say Drew Holiday getting paid $40 million a year is way, 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 way too much. Now, yes, Drew Holiday is a good player. He's a good defenseman. He's their best defensive guard for the Milwaukee Bucks. So, yes, I understand part of it. I understand how big of an impact he's had, and I understand that he is a very good player. But we are talking about $40 million per year for a 30-year-old who has never averaged more than 21.2 points per game. Now, not to say 21.2 is not a really good mark, because that is a good mark, but $40 million for 17 points is a ton and a ton and a ton of money. So for the Milwaukee Bucks, I really don't like this move. Now, yes, they traded for Drew Holiday. They needed to at least lock him down, but... At this price tag, I think that is absolutely insane. I mean, we are talking $40 million per year, and I mean, there's no getting out of this if you are the Milwaukee Bucks. Milwaukee Bucks are in a really tough situation for the next four years, and they've done this completely to themselves. So let's 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 talk about it this way. Let's look at other big threes that have been created that are going to be solidified for a little while, and let's let's think about them. Let's think about how good these big threes are. Now, let's start with the Milwaukee Bucks. Their big threes, Chris Middleton, Giannis Antetokounmpo, and Drew Holiday. Now, I love Giannis Antetokounmpo. I think he's a great player. Is he a winner? Not yet. I like Chris Middleton. He's a good player. He's not great. And I like Drew Holiday. Same type of deal. He's good. Not great. He's not going to be a superstar. So is this big three, which is going to be paid for a pretty long while, I mean, in 2023, we are going to see all three of these guys under contract for a ton of money combined, $45 million for Giannis, $40.5 million for Chris Middleton, and about $35 million for Drew Holiday. There's not going to be much more money for the Milwaukee Bucks outside of these three guys. I mean, they've made it pretty clear that this is the direction they're going in, and these are the three guys that they want to build around. Now, are these three guys good enough? Well, let's look at the other big threes in the NBA. First off, let's start with the Lakers. I love LeBron James. I love Anthony Davis. Now, I like Dennis Schroeder, and I like Andre Drummond. I don't love either of them, but if you get to my drift, I love multiple players from that big three. For the 76ers, I love Joel Embiid. I love Ben Simmons. Now, I like Tobias Harris, but again, 
I love two of those guys from the big three. For the Nuggets, I love Jokic. I love what MPJ has brought, and I like Jamal Murray. Still, not as good. For the Nets, I love all three of that big three. I love Kyrie. I love James Harden. I love Kevin Durant. And if I'm a person building a roster and I see the Nets have those three guys, they've got James Harden, they've got Kevin Durant, they've got Kyrie Irving. And then I look at the Milwaukee Bucks and I see who they have for just about the same price tag in Giannis, Chris Middleton, and Drew Holiday, and and it baffles me. I mean, Milwaukee has made the same price payments. They've made the same commitment. But if you look at the the teams, Milwaukee is still not a top 10 or a top 5 team in the NBA. Now, yes, they are a top 10 team. They're a good team. They're a top 4 team in the Western or in the Eastern Conference. They would struggle in the Western Conference. I mean, the Sixers and the Nets, I I still take over the Milwaukee Bucks. The Utah Jazz, the Phoenix Suns, the Clippers, the Nuggets, and the Lakers. I'll take all of them against the Milwaukee Bucks. I think the Milwaukee Bucks are a good, not great team. I think the Milwaukee Bucks need to do more, and they've kind of solidified themselves and dug themselves into a corner. They can't really do too much when you have these guys locked up for the time being. I mean, Brooke Lopez next year, $13 million. How much cap space is there going to be left after all of the payments and all of the the contracts get underway. Drew Holiday is getting paid a ton and a ton and a ton of cash, and we're going to see this Milwaukee Bucks team have to rely on some draft picks, some no-names. But the big issue with that, the big problem with the Bucks relying on the no-names, relying on the guys who are trying to get their opportunities, they've traded all their draft picks. I mean, Drew Holiday was quite the trade. They paid way too much for Drew Holiday, and I want to compare this to what happened with uh, the Los Angeles Clippers, because even though I like the big three of the, uh, the Los Angeles Clippers better than the big three of the Milwaukee Bucks, they are in a tough and bad situation uh, because of what they have done to themselves by digging themselves a hole. Now, sure, the Clippers are a team that's going to be in the playoffs, and they're going to be competing for the Western Conference. Now, no, they're not the best team. No, I don't think they're going to win the Western Conference, and I don't think they're going to win the NBA championship. And the reason being is they've pigeonholed themselves in a situation where they have to rely so heavily on three guys. Paul George was traded to this team for an absurd amount of draft picks, an absurd amount of draft swaps, and the Clippers made that decision to basically give up on all their assets and try to acquire stars. Now that the Clippers have no assets and really not enough stars, they're kind of in a stuck phase. They're stuck at the middle of the Western Conference. They're stuck with a first or second round exit, and the roster's not getting better. I mean, if you look at a ton of teams in the Western Conference, the Denver Nuggets, the LA Lakers, those teams got better. The Clippers didn't get better by making all of those moves. I mean, right now, Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, yeah, that's a great big two. But beyond that, they're just gave up every asset for nothing. And that's the same direction that the Milwaukee Bucks are heading in. The Milwaukee Bucks traded away a ton of draft capital to bring in Drew Holiday. And bringing in Drew Holiday made them a better team, but not all that much. Drew Holiday is a good third scorer, but we are talking about Drew Holiday and not a guy like Kyrie Irving or James Harden. 
I mean, James Harden was traded for nearly the same draft capital as Drew Holiday was. Obviously, it was more. There were players involved and, and stuff like that. But if the Bucks are going to make a big-time move, why are they bringing in a middle-level point guard? Now, Drew Holiday is a good defensive point guard, don't get me wrong. But offensively, he's not going to bring a whole lot more than a bunch of other point guards are going to bring. So why did the Bucks want to rely on Drew Holiday so heavily to really revitalize this entire organization? Because that's pretty much what they did. They're relying on him solely to be able to change everything around. They're putting $40 million a year to Drew Holiday so he can fix this organization. And I am worried that Drew Holiday is not capable of turning a whole organization around and turning around the Milwaukee Bucks. And their 32-17 and 17 record, although good enough for third in the East, isn't good enough to win an NBA championship. Giannis Antetokounmpo right now doesn't have the sidekicks necessary to win an NBA championship. Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday are good players, but they are not superstars. And in today's NBA, you need multiple superstars to win an NBA championship. And I think that list, as far as how many teams can win an NBA championship, is not very big in the NBA. I think you could see the Sixers, the Nets, the Jazz, the Clippers, the Nuggets, and the Lakers win a championship. Those are the only teams that I really believe in to win an NBA championship. Now, I really don't believe too much into the Jazz, but the way they're performing, I don't want to go against them as much as I already have this season. So I'm going to take a quick break. When I come back, we got a whole lot to talk about. We saw a new big-time trade, so we're going to dive into that right after the break. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Up for Debate. I'm your host, Cade Reed. Thank you all very much for tuning in today. Make sure you tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 3 p.m., where I will be here live bringing you the most debatable content in all of sports, only on KJAC Radio. Now, there was a big-time trade in the NFL that just took place right before the show started. The New York Jets have traded quarterback Sam Darnold to the Carolina Panthers for multiple draft picks. In return for Sam Darnold, uh, the Jets are going to receive a sixth-round pick this year, a second-round pick, and a fourth-round pick from next year. Uh, So the Panthers are getting a new quarterback. And we knew that this was going to happen as they have been trying to move, trying to to get rid of uh, Teddy Bridgewater for a little while now. And we've heard that the Panthers have been in the mix for Matthew Stafford. We heard they were in the mix for other quarterbacks. So this is no surprise that they took their swing and brought in Sam Darnold. Now, Sam Darnold is somebody who is going to be a completely different quarterback than what we saw with the New York Jets. The New York Jets had really not much of anything talent-wise when it came to that offense. And Sam Darnold had a pretty tough time uh, surviving as a New York Jet. Now, things should be different for him in Carolina. They do have much better weapons. Uh, Chris McCaffrey is a much better weapon than we've ever seen Sam Darnold work with. Uh, He's getting Robbie Anderson back. He used to love throwing to Robbie Anderson DJ and David Moore, both good wide receivers. So Sam Darnold has guys to throw it to now. But the big concern is that offensive line. Taylor Moten is back. Matt Paradis is there. So there's a couple really good pieces for that offensive line. A couple pieces, not as great. Cameron Irving's okay. Uh, Pat F. Line is okay. John Miller is okay. 
but the Panthers are making an upgrade at the quarterback position. And that does mean that Teddy Bridgewater is likely looking at his last couple days as a Carolina Panther. Now, was Sam Darnold worth a second, a fourth, and a sixth-round pick? Uh, I don't think so. Probably not. Uh, Sam Darnold is a good quarterback, we think. And that's the real thing. We haven't seen Sam Darnold really perform at the level of a real franchise NFL quarterback throughout his career. Now, has he gotten the opportunity to prove himself? No. Has he gotten the opportunity to do this with a good unit around him? No. So the Panthers are a much better unit than he's ever worked with. Now, the Panthers have to really focus on working and making everything around him better. Now, they've already worked on that defense. Their defense is already improving. Hassan Reddick is is a new addition. Denzel Perryman, uh, he's been there a couple years, but they've got some really talented guys. Jeremy Chin, uh, young, Brian Burns, young. So they've got some young talent on that defensive side of the ball. Now it's time to focus, time to rebuild that offense. Robbie Anderson is a good wide receiver. He's no wide receiver one. DJ Moore, David Moore, both good wide receivers. None of them are wide receiver ones. So for the Carolina Panthers, they need to solidify themselves a top receiver. They need to make sure they find themselves a Devontae Smith, a Jamar Chase, somebody along those lines who can really put them over the top. With Sam Darnold now as a member of the Panthers, they have a lot of work to do to make sure that he is as comfortable as possible. There was no comfort for him when he was in the New York Jets. I mean, we saw him seeing ghosts in one of his matchups. This is not a bad quarterback, but as far as quarterbacks go, he may not be able to ever recover uh, from the type of quarterback that he could have been coming out of college. And we have to keep in mind, he is a former top five overall draft pick. Uh, The Colts and the Jets traded, so... Sam Darnold could be drafted by the New York Jets. Uh, So the Jets made the commitment because of his talent. Now, there's a new regime in New York. They're trying to rebuild through the entire NFL draft, and I respect that. I think that's the better way to do it than trying to use somebody else's draft picks and, and try to build from there. I like what they're doing. Joe Douglas seems like a smart general manager, and he got a pretty good lump sum from the Carolina Panthers, but... The Panthers really have to move Teddy Bridgewater now. And and I'm not sure Teddy Bridgewater is really going to bring in all that much. Uh, I think there's teams that he could start on. I think he could start on the Bears. I think there's a few other teams that are in need of a quarterback pretty bad. Uh, but the, the market's not great. I mean, the quarterback market has already kind of been reassembled. We've already kind of seen where a lot of quarterbacks are going to end up. Obviously, Sam Darnold is... Now Panther, Carson Wentz with the Colts. Uh, we saw Matthew Stafford end up with the with the Rams and Jared Goff with the Lions. So this trade does open the door for a Teddy Bridgewater trade, but the teams that are going to be looking for a guy like Teddy Bridgewater are few and far between. I mean, he is a veteran guy getting paid just a little bit too much. Uh, and, I, I mean, I, I think he's worth a fifth or sixth round pick at best. Uh, And there's not many teams, I think, in the NFL that will be willing to make that move. So the Panthers may be stuck with Teddy Bridgewater for the remainder of his contract. That would suck. I mean, the Panthers would not be in a great situation. It would be a little bit of a quarterback battle between Bridgewater and Darnold. But I know that Bridgewater isn't happy to be there. He's not happy to be the backup. He 
signed with the Carolina Panthers to be the starter. He really didn't have the worst season. Uh, obviously, Christian McCaffrey didn't play last season, so he was a little bit limited with what he could do, but he was a pretty average quarterback, 17th in the NFL in yards, uh, 24th in touchdowns and interceptions, 17th in quarterback rating, so he definitely could have been better, but as far as Teddy Bridgewater goes, he's he's just not worth all that much. So the Panthers probably overpaid. I mean, a second-round pick is really where I thought the peak was for Sam Darnold. I don't like to uh, to think about him more as a first-round draft pick after uh, the, the poor years that he's had. I mean, he had nine touchdowns, 11 interceptions last season. He had 2,200 yards, good for 28th in the NFL. So, I mean, he was significantly worse than Teddy Bridgewater on paper, uh, but he's young, and he's got the talent, he's got the experience, and potentially he could get it done and put it all together, but it's all going to come down to the people around him. Now, the offensive play calling Matt Rule and Joe Judge, they're incredible. They got great offensive minds, so Sam Darnold is going to be in a creative offense, something that he really hasn't been in throughout his career. I mean, uh, the offensive paralysis of Adam Gase is there, but Adam Gase is not a good coach, so Adam Gase could coach up a good play or draw up a good play, but he's not going to coach you on how to do the play right. And for Sam Darnold, that was a big issue from his development is he just wasn't able to move in the right direction uh, because of the coaching staff that he was stuck with. Adam Gase has proven himself, I think, is one of the worst uh, quarterbacks in that draft class. I mean, as far as what we've seen, uh, but his talent is there. We've seen some of his ability and some of what he's been able to do uh, he's had some really great outings. He's had some really, really ugly outings. So what Sam Darnold are we going to get in Carolina? Well, I think we're going to get a better version than the one that we got with the New York Jets. But how much better? I'm not sure it's going to be all that much better. I don't think Sam Darnold is really a top 10 quarterback when it's all said and done. I think he has some talent. But there's a lot of guys around him and a lot of other players uh, who I think could just overtake him. Um, as far as the division goes... Uh, the Panthers are in a better situation than the Saints as far as quarterback, and they're probably in a better situation than the Falcons because Matt Ryan is getting up there in age. But Carolina needs to make sure that this year is a big bounce-back year for Sam Darnold. I mean, this coming year is going to be Sam Darnold's most important throughout his whole career because he has to prove that it wasn't him that was the problem. He has to prove that it was the people around him, that it was the coaching staff, that... He was the product of a bad environment. Now, I think he was, but I still don't think he's going to be able to develop into the type of quarterback some people think he will. I think he's getting a fresh start. He's going to be in a better environment, but again, we're talking about a guy who hasn't been able to get it done through three years in the NFL. We're talking about a guy who has a worse uh, touchdown-to-interception ratio than a ton of other guys in the NFL. 45 touchdowns. 39 interceptions. I mean, you don't want to go one for one as far as touchdowns and interceptions go. So Sam Darnold has shown that he has talent, but he hasn't shown that he can put it together throughout an entire NFL season, let alone a couple stretches of games. Now, I'm going to take a quick break. When I come back, we've got a little bit more NFL to talk about. The NFL has solidified a 17-game season. We'll talk about what that means in just a few moments. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Up for Debate. 
I'm your host, Cade Reed. Thank you all very much for tuning in today. And make sure you tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 3 p.m. where I will be here live, bringing you the most debatable content in all of sports, only on KJAC Radio. Now, we talked a little bit about the NFL earlier, but I want to talk about a rule change that the NFL is implementing that is brand new, that is really a big-time surprise and something that the players have not wanted for as many times as, as this rule has has been proposed, as many times as, as it's been brought up by the NFL, the players have all said, no thanks, we don't want it, we don't want it, we don't want it. And that rule changes adding an extra game to the end of the regular season. So the 17-game season now is going to be one game longer, and I think it's going to be a significant change uh, for a lot of um for a lot of players and teams. I mean, if we look at last year, we are going to see that the week 17 in the NFL is a just a blowout. I mean, it's not a good week for really anybody, but it, it all comes down to a couple of games at the end of the season for a few teams. So for the Buffalo Bills, they already clinched their division. They knew they weren't going to get passed by any other team. They couldn't pass the Kansas City Chiefs, so the Bills wouldn't be playing. The Chiefs wouldn't be playing and the Steelers wouldn't be playing. Three teams in the AFC, the top three teams in the AFC, would not be playing on Week 17. Same thing happens for the Packers, the Saints, and the Seahawks. When they solidified their spot, there's no reason for them to continue to play. So for the NFL, we're adding an extra week that nobody wants to see. I mean, nobody likes Week 16 in general, uh, or I guess week 17 since we have the bye week, but week 17 is always the worst week in football because there's so many players who aren't playing, there's so many teams that are resting, and there's so many injuries that have been piling up at this point in the season. Now we're adding one more game, and I don't imagine that we're going to see uh, week 17 be the only week that that really gets messed up. I think week 17 and week 18 are both going to be bad weeks. We're going to see bad football during those two weeks, and Things are not going to be great for the players who are just going to continue to get injured. I mean, we're going to have to watch out for that Week 17 matchup and see what kind of players end up getting hurt. Or that Week 17 matchup, not the Week 18 matchup, because Week 18 we're going to see a lot more players resting. But in Week 17, I want to see how many players end up getting hurt and how detrimental this rule is for the NFL. Because there's been a lot of players that don't want to play this last season. There's been a lot of players who don't like uh, that that this is a big thing. I mean, for uh, for this uh, this NFL, they've had 16 game season for such a long time, and players have dealt with it uh, the best way possible. But now expanding the season, making it a bigger season, makes things all just a little bit more difficult for the players. So why did the NFL do this? If it's such a bad idea, why did they do this? Well, you can answer any question uh, that starts with, why did the NFL do this, uh, with the same answer. It's all for money. The NFL has made a statement that they care more about the money than the player safety uh, that an extra week is going to bring. There's no reason why a 16-game regular season is not good enough. That's what we've been doing forever. There's been no problems with it. Nobody's ever said, oh, you know what? I just wish that there were 40 40 weeks of baseball, 40 weeks of football. I mean, nobody wants to watch that much football because the players are physically getting beaten up. 
I mean, they are physically getting beaten down, and it's just going to be even more next season. Now, a longer season means more money uh, for the NFL. It ju- it's just does. It means that they get an extra week on their TV uh, package. They get an extra week of stadiums being filled. They get an extra week of all that money. And it really, at some point, should positively affect the players. Uh, it should uh, increase the salary cap. It should... Uh, move in that direction, but there's not really any guarantee that that that's going to be a successful week, or there's no guarantee that people aren't going to get a little bit sick of watching these games, a little bit sick of participating and and watching every single week a new player goes down, every single week a new guy goes down, and it's the same in, same out. I mean, 16 games is good. 17 games is just making things more and more difficult. And then we're going to get into the range where we don't think 17 is enough. Where 18, 19, 20 games is a is a priority for the NFL because the more games, the more money made. But we have to keep in mind the more games, the more concussions, the more CTE, the more problems these players have after they retire, the more injuries that they suffer, the more bum knees, the more broken shoulders, the more of all of that. When you add more games, that's what you are understanding that you are adding and that is what the NFL is doing they're adding games that are going to hurt the players they're going to physically hurt the players and the players might make a little bit of money off of this but this is only going to benefit the owners this is only going to benefit the pocketbooks of the players or and the people who aren't really getting negatively affected by this and that's a big issue with with what's going on with a lot of these sports leagues is these owners are benefiting. These general managers, the guys making the paychecks without having to step on the field, they are the ones benefiting, while the players who have to beat up their bodies, who have to go through physical pain, immense amounts of physical pain, they're really not getting rewarded. They're getting punished with an extra game, an extra opportunity to get hurt before the playoffs. And for a lot of players, they love this game. They want to play it year in and year out, and it's tough to leave, but when you're looking at a 17-game schedule, it's just going to wear some players out. And a lot of players are going to get turned off as they get deeper into the season every single season where it's just a little bit longer. Just a little bit longer than what they're used to. A little bit longer than what they've accustomed themselves to. So the NFL making this decision is a poor decision to say the least. Uh, but the NFL is going to benefit. So why wouldn't they make this decision? I mean, if they were a player's league, this would have never been brought up. Now, yes, the MLB and the NBA have 100, and 100 plus games. So it's, it's a way different thing when the NFL only gets 16. They only have to rely on 16 weeks worth of money. And even though the money is there for the NFL, they have more players to pay, more people to give money to. So the, any way that the NFL can increase revenue, they're going to do it. And this is one of the ways is expanding the season. Now, this is the start. This is the start of the NFL expanding these seasons. We've seen them expand it to 17 games, but this is only the beginning. We don't know if it's going to end up being 20 games. We don't know where the the proper medium or where they're going to end up with as far as an NFL regular season goes. But what we do know is 16 games is out of the equation. 16 games is no more. So we're going to have a completely different sort of season, uh, no more 10-6, and six, 
we're going to have to go for 10 and 7. Uh, no more 11 and 5. We're going for 11 and 6. I mean, everything is going to be completely different in the NFL. They're making these moves, and I mean, it's not benefiting the fans. I mean, I, I as a fan don't want to watch another wasted week of football. I want to go to week 17 in a general season and then end it right there and then be able to get into the playoffs. I don't want to have to go to week 18. I don't want to have to milk things any longer than they have to go. I mean, if that's the case, change the playoffs. Make the playoffs longer. I want to watch playoff football, not more regular season football. So I don't like what the NFL has done. I think it's a poor idea, and I think it's going to backfire at the end of the season with players going down with more and more injuries. Uh, But I'm going to take a quick break. When I come back, we've got a couple baseball topics to talk about. Can the Shohei Otani experiment work? Stay tuned. Welcome back to Up for Debate. I'm your host, Cade Reed. Thank you all very much for tuning in today. Make sure you tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 3 p.m. where I will be here live, bringing you the most debatable content in all of sports, only on KJAC Radio. Now we've got some more to talk about in the show. The rest of the show is going to be committed to baseball. So let's jump right in with a big-time topic. Shohei Otani has finally recovered from Tommy John surgery, and he made his debut as a two-way player. Uh, He was batting second in the lineup against the White Sox while also being the starting pitcher in yesterday's game. And this was a pretty incredible outing for Shohei Otani. Otani started out the game pitching very, very well. He had 101 miles per hour, and it looks like his elbow is in pretty good shape. He went four and two-thirds innings, uh, had one earned run, seven strikeouts, brought him to a 1.93 ERA through his first outing. Pretty great game from Shohei Otani. He did exit the game with a minor injury. Now, he should be okay. Uh, Apparently, he was just sore. And it wasn't the reason he got removed, but there was a sliding play uh, where uh, Jose Abreu slid into the feet of Shohei Otani at the home plate. Not a dirty play from anybody, but uh, a little bit scary to see Shohei Otani have that sort of issue. Um, But Shohei Otani's pitching line isn't the only thing that matters for his performance in his first two-way start. He also started as a batter, which is very rare for somebody who is also the starting pitcher in the American League. Now, if you didn't know, the American League has something called the designated hitter. In my opinion, the worst position in all of sports. Basically, they're just some person who steps up to the plate and swings. And, and that's their entire job. They don't play defense. They don't pitch. They don't do any of that stuff. They just swing the bat. Now, the Angels decided with Shohei Otani going, uh, going out starting, they were going to not go out with a designated hitter. Now, this is something that's pretty advantageous for the Angels because it basically gives them an extra guy for later in the game. If they need a pinch hit, they have an extra guy to bring in. And Shohei Otani proved why they put him in instead of a designated hitter. During the first inning, Shohei Otani hit a massive shot, uh, 115 miles per hour off the bat, and he hit a home run that really solidified this lead for the LA Angels and showed just how important Shohei Otani is to this team. Now, can this experiment work? Can Shohei Otani really end up becoming a true uh, superstar in the MLB? Well, I think so. 
I think that the injury history that Otani has is worrisome. Uh, the fact that he had to get Tommy John surgery is worrisome. Uh, you never want to see a pitcher go down with Tommy John. You never want to see a pitcher have to get that surgery. I mean, if somebody gets Tommy John, you know that their shoulder is basically destroyed. And, and this surgery is the only way to really fix that shoulder. Now, Otani did reach 101 miles per hour. And that is the big thing since returning from Tommy John. He was able to reach that 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 limit. He was able to get that fastball that high. So you know his his elbow is at the very least in good enough shape to throw 100 miles an hour. And that means your elbow is in pretty dang good shape. So Otani has looked healthy throughout his first start. Now obviously uh, he did end up leaving the game with an injury. Hopefully he is just sore. Hopefully he does return here in the future. But for the Angels, his first outing was exactly what they wanted. He pitched well. We already knew he was a great batter. He's been batting his entire career uh, while he has been a designated hitter. um, Just because that's kind of been what he does. Uh, And he's got two home runs on the season. He might not be hitting the best average. He's only hitting 188 right now. But with two home runs, two of his three hits being home runs, I mean, that's good enough. Shohei Otani has already proven just how important he is uh, to this roster. He's tied for first in the entire MLB in home runs hit. For Shohei Otani, he has the potential to really change the MLB. And I am all for a, a player like Shohei Otani. I think he has the potential to save the MLB from going down a path and, and getting a... Uh, and and, and creating a full designated hitter in the American League and National League. Shohei Otani shows that pitchers can still hit. Pitchers aren't worthless when it comes to batting, and if you really work at it, you can be just that much more important of a player to your team. I mean, for Shohei Otani, if he ends up finishing out his career relatively healthy, uh, at least healthier than the way he started it, he is already one of the guys changing the league. Uh, His ability to bat and pitch has really not been seen since Babe Ruth, for for the most part. I mean, we haven't seen somebody like Shohei Otani who has the ability he has. And if he can really really figure it out and and perfect his craft uh, and, and become a great pitcher and a great batter, he can change the league. I mean, players at the high school level, I mean, pitchers aren't, aren't, aren't practicing to hit. They're not learning to, to become great two-way players, but Otani can provide and, and prove that it's not just a one, one-way player type of game. You don't just have to be a great pitcher or a great batter. You can be both, and that's what Shohei Otani has been so far. Now, obviously, his career hasn't completely gone the way that he would have hoped. Uh, the injury to his elbow was awful, not what you want to see, but... He's shown that he still has some great power at the bat. Uh, 22 home runs his rookie year, 18 the next year, and 7 in the shortened season last year. So Otani still has what it takes. His average is going to have to improve. He's going to have to work on that. But as far as pitching goes, if he can really keep up uh, what he did in that first outing, I mean, he's on the right track. Uh, A 1.93 ERA through one outing is good, but a 1.93 ERA through 10 outings would be even better. And through his first season, his rookie season in 2018, I mean, he had a 3.3 ERA uh, uh, throughout 10 games. So he's shown that he can do it. He has shown that he's got the talent to be a superstar pitcher. Now, can he put it all together? Can he figure it out and 
and really end up being not just their best pitcher, but their best hitter as well. I mean, it's definitely a possibility. I'm going to take a quick break. When I come back, I want to talk about the three remaining undefeated teams in the MLB. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Up for Debate. I'm your host, Cade Reed. Thank you all very much for tuning in today. And make sure you tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 3 p.m., where I will be here live, bringing you the most debatable content in all of sports, only on KJAC Radio. Now, we've already talked about a ton on the show. The NCAA tournament is coming to an end tonight with a matchup between Baylor and Gonzaga. Sam Darnold was traded to the Panthers, and now we're talking some MLB baseball. Uh, there's only three teams left in the MLB that remain undefeated. Now, I'm not including the Nationals or the Mets who had their series postponed due to coronavirus, but outside of those teams, there's only three left that have not lost a game. The Philadelphia Phillies, the Baltimore Orioles, and the Houston Astros. So I kind of want to talk about why each of these three teams are undefeated and what it kind of means for their season going forward. I want to talk first about the Baltimore Orioles because I think they're the biggest surprise to be undefeated. They've been a team that has really struggled uh, throughout the last five years just about with getting real talent onto this major league roster. But now, finally, the Orioles are starting to bring up some really talented guys who can take over uh, as these role player, everyday players. Now, Trey Mancini back at first base is going to be huge. He had a, t- a little bit of a cancer scare, so he was out for a little while. Uh, but he com- him coming back is going to be big for this team. Uh, Austin Hayes, Cedric Mullins, both of those guys have looked very good in the outfield. And Ryan Mountcastle, who has played all over the field and has played uh, designated hitter, has looked very good. So for the Orioles, they've got some young guns, some young stars. But is this consistency going to be something that they can keep up? Well, I'll say it plain and simple. The answer is no. The Orioles are not going to keep up this type of success. Now, yes, they are going to be a better team than last year. And I think they're going to continue to improve. They're moving in the right direction. But they still are going to be one of those bottom tier teams in the MLB. Uh, they, they still struggle with their pitching staff. They still struggle with power. Uh, Michael Franco has really struggled on a ton of other teams. Now he's finally found a home. Uh, it's the same with a couple of other guys as well. It's not the best place to play. But the Orioles are 0-3, so they've had this good start. What does that mean? Well, I think it means they're better than the Red Sox. Uh, the Red Sox are the team they swept, uh, and the Red Sox are a team that is looking very, very bad. Uh, Just in the World Series a few years back, they have kind of taken apart this roster and hit the reset button. Now, there's not really too much talent on this pitching staff. There's not really too much talent in this offense. I mean, Rafael Devers, Xander Bogarts, and Alex Verdugo is really where the talent ends. But the Boston Red Sox are going to have to figure something out. Getting swept by the Orioles uh, in opening weekend is a very, very bad sign uh, for this team that is trying to bounce back from a couple pretty bad seasons. Now, the Orioles, they're not going to be the worst team in their division, but I'd put them right at number four. I think the Red Sox are a slightly worse team. I think that the Orioles are a bad team, and 3-0 is not sustainable. Now, a team that I think is going to have a good season 
is the Houston Astros. And the Astros are such a disappointing team because they didn't need to cheat. I mean, nobody needed to cheat for the Houston Astros. They were a good enough team without it. And maybe they wouldn't have won their World Series if they cheated, but they were a team that was good enough to compete without having to uh, to cheat. Now, this year, there's seemingly no cheating. Obviously, we can't really tell if there's no cheating or not, but seemingly there isn't any cheating as far as the Astros go, and this offense is still going off the charts. Yuli Gurriel, Alex Bregman, Michael Brantley, all hitting over 500. Incredible. Jose Altuve hitting 375. Jordan Alvarez hitting a home run. Kyle Tucker as well. This team has power. This team hits for average. This team is very well-rounded offensively. And their matchup with the Oakland A's was a good one for them because the A's are a playoff uh, foe. I mean, it's going to come down to, I think, the Astros and the A's in this division. Maybe we'll see a little bit of a of a squeak from the Angels, but I think it comes to these two teams. And the Astros, even though they did have a great outing, their pitching staff really worries me. Lance McCullers has never had a real full season where he didn't get hurt. Zach Greinke's been incredible throughout his career, but I'm worried about the pitching staff beyond that number one spot. Jose Uriquidi looked okay. Jake Odorizzi's been banged up and is kind of in a worse spot in his career than he was a few years ago. I'm worried that this Astros offense is going to be tremendous and this pitching staff is going to cost them a ton of runs this season. Now, the Astros are undefeated. They're a good team, but it's going to be a battle between them and the A's for this uh, for this top AL West. The A's are a good team, and even though they didn't show it during this uh, this sweep from the Houston Astros, they, they're a better team than, than what we saw, and I expect them to be able to figure it out and bounce back. Now, the final team that is undefeated is the Philadelphia Phillies. The Phillies are actually a much better-looking team than last year. They struggled immensely with their bullpen. Their bullpen was the worst in the MLB, but right now their bullpen has not given up a single run. Uh, Jose Alvarado, Archie Bradley, and Hector Neris have all looked very good this season. The pitching staff for the Phillies is much improved. Aaron Nola, Zach Wheeler, and Zach Eflin all had great first outings of their season. Now for the Phillies, the big question is how good are those fourth and fifth starters? Is Matt Moore and Chase Anderson good enough to really put a deep playoff run on the Phillies' resume? Because I'm not sure they are. Offensively, the players are there. JT Realmuto, Alec Bohm, we're talking Bryce Harper. So they got good offensive players, but... So far, they haven't been able to put up the runs. They only had a max four-run game against the Atlanta Braves. So the runs are not coming for the Phillies. But if their pitching staff can play at a much improved level from last year, this Phillies team is going to take a big-time jump. So those are the three teams that are undefeated uh, going into the second series of the opening week in the MLB. Now that's going to do it for Up for Debate today. Thank you all very much for tuning in. And make sure you tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 3 p.m. where I will be here live bringing you the most debatable content in all of sports, only on KJAC Radio. Make sure to follow me on social media at the underscore Cade Reed. I'll be posting updates for the show, different things like that. So make sure to follow me there. But that's going to do it for the show. I will see you guys tomorrow for a baseball game at 4 p.m. here on KJAC Radio. Coconino is taking on Mingus Union. So make sure you guys tune in at 4 p.m. tomorrow to catch the baseball game. See you then.